HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. White Oak Pastures is the only farm in the United States that has its own USDA-inspected red meat abattoir or slaughterhouse and its own USDA-inspected poultry abattoir or slaughterhouse. We partner with Whole Foods to deliver our high-quality meat and poultry from Miami, Florida, all the way to Princeton, New Jersey. One family, one farm, five generations, 145 years a full circle return to sustainable land stewardship and humane animal stockmanship. For more information, please visit our website, whiteoakpastures.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Gambling, smuggling, slavery, sex, oh yeah. We're talking about coffee today on A Taste of the Past. Well, I wasn't just being facetious. We are talking about coffee, and often called a drug drink. And the history of coffee, is its past is just riddled with controversy and politics. And yes, some slavery and sex and claims of gambling. And we're going to learn all about it today from Mark Pendergrast, who is with me here in the studio. Mark is um, a freelance journalist and author of some very interesting books where he usually always finds the political in every topic, which there it always does exist, right? The personal, political. And Welcome, Mark. Mark um, has written a book, well, it's not a new book, but it's um, a book, Uncommon Grounds, and it is the history of coffee. Uh, give me the exact title. Where do I have it here? Oh, Uncommon Grounds, A History of Coffee and How It Transformed Our World. There you go, How It Transformed Our World. I knew there was something important about that title mm. that I wanted to bring in. But you also wrote a book uh, talking about a drug drink. Talk, you wrote the book on Coca-Cola, the book on Coca-Cola. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? For that God, was... Country, and Coca-Cola. Right? <laughs> yep, For God, Country, and Coca-Cola just came out in the third edition. And, and Uncommon Grounds came out in the second edition in 2010, so it's not too so old. So it's not too old, right. It's, and uh, it, I mean, both of them deal with drug drinks. 
Yes. I mean, if that's what you want to call it, caffeine, caffeine. But coffee, of course, can you imagine if somebody denied you your morning cup of joe? Well, for me, that would be dramatic. I need at least two and a half to get myself going. It gets, you know, as I get older, it gets more and it gets more and more. But, I mean, some people are not, they don't, are, are not drawn to coffee. But I would say the majority of the people, at least adults, in at least U.S., and we know in many other countries, are, if you want to say, addicted. But, I mean, they, they love their coffee, and you don't take the coffee away. Well, we are addicted. <laughs> <laughs> it is, uh, yeah. <laughs> But it's not necessarily a bad addiction, and uh, the good news is that uh, coffee uh, seems to actually be good for you in many ways, according to the epidemiologists recently. So it's... It's actually uh, my drug of choice, as I have in one of my little cartoons. That well, I, I agree with you. Then pour me another cup, will you? <laughs> I could use it. Um, all right, so the history of coffee. I mean, co- how long has it been around that we know of? And where where did it first start? started on the mountainsides of Ethiopia. It grows wild there, at least Arabica coffee, which is the better kind, which is what we're going to be talking about. Now, you today. say it's the better kind. I mean, there's so many beans now, and we're faced with so many choices. Why do you say Arabica is the better kind? Well, the other major type is called Robusta, and it has twice as much caffeine, and it has a more bitter taste. So, mm. uh, in terms of, it's sort of like ripple versus fine wine, okay. uh, if you will. Uh, so all of the different varieties that you're probably familiar with are Arabica. There's also something called Liberica. There's an, a few other commercial strains, but almost all of the best coffee is Arabica. And this is the plant. I mean, this is all from the same genus uh, of the coffee plant. Same, the- same genus of the coffee plant, which started wild on the mountainsides of Ethiopia. And probably the uh, nomadic tribes had discovered that it had something sustaining and energy-giving in it. But nobody figured out how to uh, roast the coffee bean and brew it in hot water with an infusion. Probably until sometime in the 1400s. Nobody knows exactly when. But by the early 1500s, there were coffee houses springing up around the Arab world. Um, the the cultivation of coffee had begun deliberately uh, in Yemen across the Red Sea from Ethiopia and in Ethiopia. And the Arabs knew they had a good thing, so they wanted a monopoly on it. They would parboil the uh, seeds before they exported them anywhere so that they weren't fertile, so no one else could grow them. And that kept going for some time until an Indian named Baba Budan smuggled some out in his belt and started growing it in India, And then the Dutch smuggled some out and started growing it in their greenhouses in Amsterdam and then uh, took those trees and began growing them in the East Indies, in Java and Sumatra and Ceylon. And uh, uh, that was really the beginning of Europeans discovering coffee. And that happened around 1650 uh, to 1700 in in a huge way. Mm Mm-hmm. And because of that, the French then got hold of a tree from the Dutch, took it over to the island of Martinique in the early 1700s, and began coffee cultivation there. The Spanish then spread it to their colonies, the Portuguese to Brazil. Uh, And so it spread around, the cultivation of coffee spread to about 50 countries around the world between the Tropic of Capricorn and Cancer. It grows in tropical regions, but it has to be high on mountainsides, Mm -hmm. usually between 3,000 and 6,000 feet high. 
um, in some of the most beautiful places in the world where the temperature hardly ever goes away from 75 degrees or so Fahrenheit. Kind of like chocolate. I mean, the same Very similar to chocolate chocolate and very beautiful. But the irony, of course, is that it's also some of the poorest regions in the world uh, where you you mentioned politics, where uh, the politics of coffee have often been repression, slavery, uh, and uh, environmental degradation. Uh, On the other hand, it's also become the avatar for fair trade and for really paying attention to uh, the way people are treated and and the way the environment is treated. So, well, we'll bounce we'll bounce forward to fair trade later mm-hmm. on in the show because yeah. I do want to touch on that. But um, uh, slavery or or labor laws, um, uh, you talk a lot about how the coffee bean is processed. Um, oh, but before that, you know, you had mentioned that um, it was not they didn't really roast it and brew it till much later till probably around the the 15th century maybe or so that's right but they were chewing the leaves right well they were making an infusion from the leaves probably they were taking the bean which is quite hard if it's not roasted grinding it up and putting it with animal fat to to give in, quick energy on uh, on trips hmm. but they weren't uh, brewing it necessarily mm-hmm. certainly not the beans no you know it's funny because a, a little just a little side bar was that you um, mentioned that sometimes they would chew the leaves of the plant coffee known as bun mm-hmm. b-u-n-n mm-hmm. and i thought oh a light went off all those you know cafeterias and and uh, diners all use the coffee makers called Bun. Yeah, bunomatics. And bun- I, I it just and it dawned on me that hey, maybe there was a connection. I, I don't know if that's w- why they call it that or not. I, I, I've never asked them. Isn't that something? <laughs> I mean, you know, B U N N. I figured yeah. it was the same thing. So anyway, the but the um, the processing of the, this is this is quite a procedure to process the cherries, if you will, into what we know as a you know as, as the coffee beans we buy in the store. Yeah, I said at the beginning of the book, you know, it's just a seed of this tree, or mm-hmm. it's really a shrub. Uh, it's an understory tree. Uh, normally grows with uh, shade trees in a canopy in sort of a rainforest above it. And when they're ripe, they usually turn red, although there's some varieties that turn yellow. So you pick them only when they're red. And then you have to strip the uh, skin and the pulp off of it but there's a mucilage that sticks to the uh, inner seed, and then inside that there is a parchment layer, kind of like in a peanut. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then inside that there's a <laughs> silver skin layer, which stays on the, the green beans until it's blown off in the roasting process. So how you get that green bean out of its various layers turns out to be rather complex. Uh, many places use the wet process where they strip everything off the outside and then let it ferment for 24 to 48 hours until the uh, the mucilage will fall off of the bean. That's th- This wet process produces a very clean taste. Um, the natural process is just leaving it to dry everything the way you pick it off and then stripping it off. Um, that can be problematical because of fermentation. On the other hand, it adds ca- kind of an earthy tone hmm. To the, to the bean, and then they're semi-washed where if you strip it off and let it dry with the mucilage on it, it imparts a slightly different taste also. So there's been a lot of experimentation, particularly in recent years, not only with the 
where the bean is. I, I mentioned Arabica. Most mm-hmm. of them are that. But they're different species of tree. Um, there's kind of a terroir to coffee the same way there is to wine so that it tastes differently depending on what exact microclimate it's in. Uh, and then the way it's, uh, you know, if it's not picked totally at the right time, it's not good. Uh, and the way it's processed and then the way it's handled after that and the way that it's roasted, all of these impact uh, the cup that you it's drink. It's a very delicate process. I mean, not delicate so much, but, I mean, so much can go wrong. What? How are the majority of the beans that we would buy in our... Um, even our specialty coffee shops you need know, to go into Whole Foods, for instance, and mm-hmm. there are or Fairway, and there are just you know barrels and barrels of you know different coffees with yeah, their I was identification. Just in Fairway this morning, actually, <laughs> I was very impressed. Except that I said to them, "Gee, how quickly do you turn these over? Because they'll get stale in an open uh, barrel yeah, like that yeah. if you're not careful." But they apparently have very big turnover, and the Probot roaster that they roasted in is right there. I was very impressed, and they have a you know they have a dark roast, they have medium roasts. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know it's quite a setup there. So how are those? How are those beans um, primary processed? Yeah, most of them are wet processed. Uh-huh. Most of the fine beans in the world are. But as I said, increasingly there's been a recognition that naturally processed beans, very carefully treated, uh, are quite good. Sumatran beans, for instance, uh, are semi-washed, uh, but. They go through a complex processing that often destroys everything. It's terrible, but when it comes out well, it's this really unique earthy taste. Um, so, and I just wrote an article. I write articles for the Wine Spectator about coffee because the same people who appreciate fine wine appreciate fine coffee. And I wrote one about a double-washed process where they take it one step beyond the normal fermentation and and soak them for another 24 hours after they've gotten rid of it to add another quality. So there really is a difference uh, in taste uh, depending on how you treat the beans. Hmm. Interesting. And and, um, people who, especially one of the themes of that recurring theme um, on my show is that everything old is new again. And, you know, People are now paying more attention to beans and how they're processed and where they come from and, and roasting them themselves, which, of course, they all did in the old days because that's the only way they could get them, right? But, that's right. Um, um, roasting themselves and, of course, have their favorite types of coffees in the coffee houses. Now, you mentioned that European popularity was about 1650, 1700, mm-hmm. but it was quite popular and there were a lot of coffee houses long before that right and where it where people were recognizing that hmm maybe there were some negative effects to all this caffeine well the governor of mecca uh banned coffee houses in 1511 that was the first real problem that i'm aware of and you know there's a big argument over whether coffee was like you know alcohol is banned by muslims uh, whether coffee should be. And eventually they decided, no, it shouldn't be. And uh, the governor of Mecca was saying that, that it was bad for you, etc. But the real problem was that there was prostitution and gambling happening in those early coffee houses. And they were also writing seditious verses about the governor saying <laughs> what a jerk he was. So maybe, was there were del- maybe there were a couple of reasons why he wanted to shut them down. That's right. Well, it's interesting. Coffee does seem to <laughs> unleash the uh, creative juices in people. Um, and and 
many uh, you know revolutions were planned in coffee houses: the French Revolution, the American Revolution. Bach and Beethoven uh, created some of their best music to uh, coffee. To a lot of co- like Bach wrote the coffee cantata, <laughs> uh, where his he had a, a, a girl complaining to her father that if she didn't get her coffee, uh, she was just going to die and feel like a dried up roast goat. Uh, it's quite funny. <laughs> Well, um, it not only was it you know demand you know, in great demand from the people because they, well, an addiction, if you will, yeah, you want coffee in it, and we know that it has the power to keep us awake and, and alert when when we're feeling. Well, that a was one down. of the first reasons that they uh, discovered it in Ethiopia was the Sufi monks took it to stay awake for their midnight prayers, mm. so they were very aware that it, it kept you awake. But let me just mention before I forget, I talked about it transforming our world in the subtitle right. of the book. Right. One of the major ways it did that was by sobering up Europe. They drank from the from beer soup for breakfast right straight through the day, in part because their water was making Tainted. them ill. Yeah. But in part because they were they liked alcohol and they were drunk a lot of the time. So it's not an accident that when uh, Europe Europeans began drinking coffee and tea uh, they sobered up, and suddenly uh, the Renaissance really uh, was underway. Uh, so I really do sparked th- the creative juices, as you said. Right? It did, uh, yeah. Uh, and a lot of business started. Uh, Lloyd's of London was a coffee house uh, specializing in uh, insurance. Insurance, right? <laughs> uh, that's that's how Lloyd's of London began. Huh. Well, it, a lot of literature began there too. Early newspapers. And, well, and, and coffee, coffee and cigarettes, right? I mean, yeah, that's a, a that was a writer's plague. Like mm-hmm. Coffee and cigarettes uh, had a lot. It's a, a, a coffee being a very volatile, um, f- you know, influenced by a lot of flavors. Also, the market it has a very volatile market. That's right. So the which we're experiencing right now again. So the economics of coffee. Tell me, bring me through a little bit of that. Well, coffee really truly became an internationally traded commodity in the late 1800s when you had steamships and railroads. And that's when uh, the price, uh, there there was an attempt, there's a whole chapter in my book on an attempt to corner the coffee market by three men. And when their attempt collapsed around 1879, I believe, 1880, one of them committed suicide. Uh, that's when they began the, the uh, futures exchange, which mm. we still have now. But ever since then, you've had a boom-bust cycle in coffee, and I think it's inevitable that it's going to continue, where when the price is high, everybody will plant uh, coffee seedlings and expand their plantations. But it takes four or five years for coffee to come to full harvest. So... You've really, it's not like you can rip out the trees and plant something else. It's a real capital investment. And then there's too much coffee, and the price tanks, people will abandon their plantations or they won't prune or fertilize decently, and eventually there won't be enough coffee again. And price you'll, goes back up you'll, again. You'll have the price up. Right now, we had, we had a boom period about three years ago. And everybody was saying, this is the new normal. You're not going to have any more uh, bus cycles. And I said, that's not true. I don't believe it. Well, we're having a bus cycle right now. The hmm. price is down to about $1.20 uh, a pound on the sea market, which is not good. If it goes much lower, you'll have people abandoning their farms again. 
Oh, my goodness. Uh, we will talk more about that and coffee in general and, and about what we can do about this and, and the fair trade exchange when we come back after this short break. The following program has been brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Route 11 Potato Chips dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate. Incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Root 11 Potato Chips believes comfort food should be just that. Know where your food comes from. For more information, visit rt11.com. The sun came up, Grandma called, and she's feeling fine. I put down the phone with a smiling face, yet I feel alright. But something always seems to come along. Hi, we're back talking about coffee, the history of coffee with Mark Pendergrass, and he's the author of Uncommon Grounds, How Coffee Transformed the World. And Mark, in your book, you um, you describe a wonderful ceremony. We all know about the tea ceremony, you know, the elaborate tea ceremonies in Japan. But in the beginning, way back when, there was, I don't know if it still exists, but a wonderful coffee ceremony. Can you Tell us a little bit about that. It does still exist. Oh, wonderful. Um, yeah. You go to any Ethiopian household, and they still do this. They will roast the green beans right there in sort of a big flat pan, kind of like a giant wok over a brazier. And they'll constantly stir it with a, a metal implement, and the smells will begin to waft up, and people will, will inhale the smell. And then they grind it, usually in a mortar and pestle, uh, and then put the hot water in, uh, and and uh, they will serve it three times. And then don't they add some other spices you mentioned to coriander? They, and They often and add coriander or cardamom or cinnamon, mm. uh, sometimes uh, frankincense, I think. And... Uh, it's, and, oh, and they serve it with popcorn. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, and uh, it's quite wonderful. If you, uh, you know, I mean, here we are, my, my goodness, in Brooklyn. There's got to be a lot of Ethiopians very n- nearby here mm-hmm. who, who do the coffee ceremony. Go to an Ethiopian restaurant and ask if they'll set it up for you, and they probably will. And this, I mean, this is not a, a quick cup of coffee. This is like an hour-long ceremony, right? Absolutely. Oh, yes. wonderful. It's, it's the social event uh, uh, that you will have in, in someone's home when you are a, an honored guest. Mm, mm-hmm. Interesting. And then you drink all that coffee and whoop, you're up and you're out the door, yes. <laughs> ready mm-hmm. to go. Absolutely. Uh, coffee, um, we were talking about, uh, before the break, we were talking about the, the um, volatile market in coffee. And in fact, so much speculation in the coffee market that the coffee exchange was established. That's right. Um, what about the Industrial Revolution? What kind of impact did that have on the whole coffee industry? Well, if you go back to the Civil War, 
you know, everyone was uh, getting their own green beans and, you know, basically frying them in a frying pan. And it was good because they were fresh roasted, but they were unevenly roasted, and it was a problem. So during the Civil War, a guy named Jabez Burns invented the first automatic roaster that would uh, circular, and at the end it had a little spiral screw that would spit the beans out the other end. (laughs) And at the same time, uh, someone invented the paper bag (laughs) for peanuts, you know, how they were popular during the Civil War. So the Arbuckle brothers uh, came along soon after the Civil War and began packaging coffee for the first time, and it was very popular. So you had the branding beginning in the late 1800s. That was the uh, when Chase and Sanborn, uh, Folgers, Maxwell House all began. Hills Brothers. Hills Brothers. <laughs> yeah. All began in those years, and I tell the quite interesting story of many of them, and they would be considered specialty roasters nowadays. Um, it's interesting that the ruination of coffee really happened uh, gradually, but but in a big way after World War II, because I mentioned that robusta was sort of an inferior kind of coffee. Right. When when we started making instant coffee in a big way after World War II. Uh, they used cheaper beans because it was so bad, it didn't really matter what you used. <laughs> and those robusta beans then began to leak into regular uh, brews. Regular and, and when you can coffee, we didn't talk about this, but when you roast coffee, it has to degas. It, it produces carbon dioxide. And so if you put it into a can right away, it would burst it. Uh, in a few days because of the gas coming out. So you have to pre-stale it, which is not good. Hmm. Um, So one of the things that's revolutionized coffee, uh, I mean, it's great if you are near a local roaster and you can get it truly fresh roasted. But uh, now with a one-way valve, you know, you go into the store and there's a, it looks like a little belly button on it. Yeah. And if you press it. The air comes out. The air comes out. Well, the air does not go in. So that's protecting it from exposure to oxygen, and that really, really helps uh, to keep the beans fresher for longer. Yeah. Um, the, the, um, you're talking about the specialty roasters, and, of course, uh, jump ahead, and then now we have all these uh, – you talk about Brooklyn especially. I mean, we are here in Brooklyn doing mm-hmm. the radio show in there. That's right. There have to be so many coffee houses here in Brooklyn and, and specialty coffee shops and roasters. But – Truly all across America. And, of course, Seattle, we know, started mm-hmm. with the one of their special Well, you know, companies. I want to give a shout-out to a guy named Donald Schoenholt because I just came from seeing him at Gilly's Coffee. It's the oldest existing coffee roaster in the United States right here in Brooklyn. Huh. And Donald knows more about coffee and its history probably than I ever will. You should have him on your program. He was so helpful to me when I was doing my book and has remained a, a close friend. Well, little did I know, see? <laughs> and and he'll, uh, he's quite something. So uh, he could give you – his father worked at Gillies uh, uh, before him. He was just telling me this great story of his father paying him $12 for his first week of work. <laughs> <laughs> well, you talk about the, you know, the big industry and the big companies. Um, my father-in-law was a, uh, a manager and, and director at, Ch- at um, Standard Brands. Oh, really? So Chase and Sanborn Coffee. And he would talk, he would uh, tell well, my husband, who would then relate to me, the stories of 
all the beans coming in, how they'd mix some of the inferior beans would get mixed in, as you said, you know, mm-hmm. with the Arabica beans and and the tasters, taste called cuppers, as you mentioned mm-hmm. in a lecture the other night, you know, and they had their panel of tasters and uh, and the roasting. It was really an interesting history because they would get the bones, the beans right off the boat. And uh, Well, standard brands is interesting because it, if I'm not mistaken, it came out of uh, Postum originally, mm. I, I think, uh, that uh, C.W. Post invented this fake coffee, which evolved into standard brands, uh, and which eventually evolved into, uh, all, ironically, buying Maxwell House, so that they were trying to advertise the same. One of them was saying how evil coffee was and would make you really nervous, and the other one was selling coffee. So <laughs> I'm not sure how they managed that at the same time. So all these big companies did get involved. But um, but again, the negative effects, and we're talking, you know, we're talking, uh, what, the 40s, 50s. Mm-hmm. Again, there was... A, um, and 60s. And 60s, right. The negative effects of caffeine. Um, and you you talk well, a lot about... Well, the perceived negative. Per, or perceived negative effects, right. Um, talk a little bit about that and, and, and the lack of good advertising or the, or the bad advertising mm-hmm. that it went on. Well, C.W. Post was around 1900, and uh, he drove the coffee people crazy. By you know, he would have all these pseudoscientific claims saying you know that coffee was bad for you and caffeine was killing you, etc. But many, many people have thought that for a long time. By the late 70s, there were a number of epidemiological studies that were flawed. It turns out they weren't taking into account whether people who drank a lot of coffee also smoked or were overweight or whatever whatever countervailing factors there were but they you know there was a, they were saying that coffee might cause pancreatic cancer that it might cause breast lumps that it might cause birth defects so there was a big move towards decaffeinated coffee and away from the real thing um, now the epidemiologists have basically cleared coffee and are saying not only does it not cause all those terrible things, it's good for you in a number of ways, that people who drink coffee tend to have less liver cancer. Hmm. They tend to commit suicide less. Um, And there are a number of other health benefits from drinking coffee. Even though it is an addictive uh, uh, product, it doesn't seem to be a bad addiction. It seems to be a relatively benign one. But yet, the you know the advent of decaf has not left us. I mean, the, the decaffeinated coffee people. You know, there are people who will only drink decaf. Well, caffeine is an interesting drug. It affects people individually differently. Some people can't drink it at all. It really wires them up. Some people can drink a double strong espresso right before they go to sleep and have no problem at all. Uh, it you do become habituated to it if yeah. if you are you you develop a tolerance for it, um, but as I said, it does seem that it's you know not associated with heart disease like we used to think. Um, so it's it's actually getting a pretty good name now, which I'm pleased to hear because I do like my coffee myself. <laughs> as do I, um, and you know it's interesting because we have now all these, uh, as I mentioned, the coffee houses, but the um, Brewed coffee. Chemex is back 
in full strength as it you know full strength mm-hmm. um, the specialty methods of brewing and slow pouring and of course baristas uh, learning how to to make a proper you know espresso. espresso right right in fact that they have a barista competition an annual barista competition and a guy here in in New York won the competition this year Fantastic. Yeah, Yeah, I wrote, I I attended one of those competitions a couple of years ago and wrote about it. And I said, you know, at first I thought this was silly, but uh, it really is, you know, it's very high tension. It's like watching the coffee Olympics. And uh, there really is a lot to being a good barista. I will say to make a good cup of regular coffee, there are lots of ways to do it. But basically, it's a matter of taking two teaspoons of ground coffee, putting it together with six ounces of almost boiling water, letting it infuse, be in contact with it for about four minutes, and then somehow or other separating the grounds from the hot water. That's all there is. Mm-hmm. So this whole Fancy thing, pots and... and <laughs> everything else fancy is just a way to do that. Well, you know, it's it does have its appeal. And the... Um, somebody, uh, well, the Huffington Post just wrote an, an article, somebody in, uh, wrote for Huffington, about um, tasting coffee tasters and being able to detect the difference between decaffeinated and caffeinated coffee. Mm-hmm. Can you detect the difference? Well, I think I can, but I've never done a blind taste test. Is that what they were saying? They did, and they, and they mentioned that, um, I guess, I don't know, you know, two out of three of the people tasting said uh, there was a heightened bitterness. Mm-hmm. to decaffeinated coffee. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't like decaffeinated coffee uh, because, for one thing, I like caf- I like ca- my caffeine. But Why also, bother, right? <laughs> uh, but I uh, I prefer the, the taste of, of real coffee also. No matter what kind of decaffeinating uh, you do, it's going to affect the taste. Um, well, there's there are water pe- processed or, or chemical processed. They stop the chemical, a lot of the chemical processing. I the think. chemical process doesn't do anything bad to you whatsoever. That's a, a complete myth. Yes. Uh, it sounds sweet that you're not using the chemicals, but they're all blown off by the roasting process anyway. So I'm not concerned about that. But it, there's no way that you can't affect the taste in, as far as I know. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, if somebody just likes the taste of coffee but is so affected by caffeine, I guess that's good. And like when... Being a kid, you know, you'd smell the coffee when the can was first. I loved opening my mother's can of coffee and mm-hmm. and getting that whiff from the vacuum packed coffee of of the grounds because it would be ground coffee. She That's didn't right. grind her own. She bought a you know a can of of Hills Brothers and right. then kept bacon grease in it afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> but opening up that can and getting that whiff and it smelled so good. And then I'd go and I'd taste her cup of coffee and I'd go, ugh. Yeah, it was, you know, horrible. it was horrible. I didn't I didn't like coffee till I was writing this book. I didn't write the book because I loved coffee. I love coffee because I wrote the book. Uh, in other words, people kept giving me really good coffee. But like you, I'm a baby boomer. Mm-hmm. And I the coffee I tasted was terrible. And it was also very diluted. Yes. Uh, you talk about how everybody drinks coffee. The per capita consumption of coffee in this country was at its highest in 1946. The coffee people liked to pretend that it was growing because people were drinking more cups of it. They were measuring it by the cup, not by the pound of coffee used, because it was so bad that people were diluting it more and more in order to be able to drink it and drinking more and more cups of it to get the, the caffeine. Uh, even that began to decline in 1962. 
So the specialty revolution began, I dated it to 1966, when Alfred Peet, a Dutch immigrant, began Peet's Pete's in Coffee. Berkeley, yeah. California in 1966. And I interviewed Mr. Peet before he died, and he said that people used to say, what are you trying to do, poison me? This isn't coffee. This is terrible. <laughs> uh, and then they would develop a taste for it. And then he had people you know, lining up around the block to get decent coffee. So it's an acquired taste. And then, of course, the 70s saw the, uh, the startup of the company we all know, Starbucks, which... That's right. So the star, the three guys who started Starbucks, Jerry Baldwin, uh, Gordon Bowker, and Zev Siegel, they used to make uh, pilgrimages from uh, Seattle either down to Pete's and Berkeley or up to Vancouver to Murchie's to get decent uh, beans. And then finally they decided to start their own uh, coffee roastery. They didn't have any idea to sell uh, drinks. They would, you know, they were just roasters, right? They were just roasters. Their whole idea was to teach people to grind their own beans at home and 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 and, uh, yeah. and make their own coffee. It was when Howard Schultz became their salesman in the '80s and went to Italy and saw the theater of uh, espresso that he came back and said, this is what we ought to be doing. And he eventually bought them out and, and uh, turned Starbucks into what it is now. But a lot of people think that Starbucks began the specialty revolution, and that's not true. They were one of many little grassroots roasters, or some of them that had been around, like Gillies, Gillies that I mentioned. Yeah. Um, Donald Schoenholt was one of the early founders of the Specialty Coffee Association of America, the SCAA. Hmm. And the big guys... I was talking to him about it this morning. They didn't know what hit them. The people from Standard Brands or uh, from uh, Folgers would would come and snoop around. He said they looked like FBI guys in their <laughs> black suits, but they had no clue what they were looking at. <laughs> Did I mention in the title we're, we're also talking about espionage, right? <laughs> they didn't know what to look for, so they were trying they to find the secret, right? Yeah, the secret was fresh roasted, small batch, uh, locally owned. Well, before we close, I just wanted to mention something about um, the whole fair trade industry because you said it's it, the coffee is grown usually in, in – the places where there's the poorest economy mm-hmm. and and what we're doing is degradation of the land. Talk about fair trade coffee a little bit. The fair the fair trade fair practices. trade and shade grown also. Um, fair trade pays a guaranteed minimum price. It's not always hugely higher than the sea market, but it's something higher anyway. And it does help people a lot. Uh, however, Traditionally, it's only been available to small growers who form democratically run cooperatives and who then jump through the hoops and pay for a certifier to come. Uh, There's been a big split within the fair trade community in the last year or two uh, because uh, the American version of it has decided to expand the definition to allow fair trade for larger plantations or estates coffee that treat their workers very well. I personally think this is a good idea because, you know, a lot of people think only fair trade coffee is good and other coffee they must be mistreating people, but that's not true necessarily. Um, the, the good news is that if you really appreciate really good coffee, it's likely that the workers are getting paid more. It's likely that they at least have shoes for their children, some kind of medical care, and maybe their children can go to school. Uh, but, you know, there's such a disconnect 
and such an inequality built into uh, the coffee world and into many tropical products. Mm -hmm. We expect, uh, we we think it's our birthright to have cheap coffee, uh, and we're used to it, so that whenever the price goes up substantially, we complain and think there's a communist plot. Uh, So I personally would like to see the price of coffee uh, go substantially higher uh, if if most of the money, that's a big if, yes. goes back to the people who, who are actually doing all the work. Uh, because And I think, let me put in this one plug. I, I tried to start a program called Harvest for Humanity, like Habitat mm-hmm. for Humanity. Right. Because guess what? You know, the, the, in, in Central America, uh, in uh, the fall and the early winter, that's when they're harvesting coffee. And it's when we want to get out of the cold and the snow. Why not go down there and actually see coffee and take part in the harvest yourself? Uh, I'd like to see people, more and more people do this as sort of an eco-tourist holiday uh, and pay for the privilege of doing so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and But coffee will never taste the same to you once you have seen or taken part in uh, the coffee harvest because you'll see what a lot of work it is, what pride uh, generally they take so in it. Know your food, know your coffee. It's, yeah. it's an appreciation will come about, right? Yeah, uh-huh. absolutely. Well, I, I am going to taste my coffee differently. I will tell you that after this. And I thank you very much for sharing all the information thank on you. the history of coffee. Mark Pendergrass and his book is Uncommon Grounds. Thanks for listening. I'm Linda Palaccio, and this has been A Taste of the Past. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.